Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editors Brenda Sandberg and Sue Sutter and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is November 10th, 2023. We're going to dive into some legal issues and their application to the FDA today. First is the FTC challenging patents in the FDA's Orange Book. Brenda, what's going on here? On Tuesday, the FTC sent letters to 10 drug manufacturers saying they had improperly listed their patents in FDA's Orange Book. And each letter cited the drug at issue and the patents at issue. And all of them were drug device combination products, inhalers, epinephrine, auto injectors, and one eye drop product, uh, Restasis. Um, lawyers I spoke to questioned that the FTC was challenging these patents when FDA hasn't said what device patents can be listed in the in the Orange Book. Um, the FDCA, uh, FTC Act um, requires new drug applicants to submit a list of patents that could reasonably be asserted against a generic product. And the patents are those claiming the active ingredient, formulation or composition, or a method of using the drug. There's no mention of devices. Um, the FTC had issued a policy statement in September saying it was going to enforce the law against companies who wrongly listed patents, but it didn't specify what would be an improper listing. And, and the letters it sent out also didn't say why the patents cited were improperly listed. The agency, ha the FTC is focused on, on Orange Book uh, list listings. Um, it examined the potential anti-competitive effect in a 2002 study, and, and it filed an amicus brief in a jazz pharmaceutical infringement suit against Avidil um, last year, you know, suggesting that jazz had improperly listed a, a REMS patent. So one might have expected the agency to target those kind of drug patents. Um, and also of note, many of the drugs cited in the letters are generics. Well, they're, they have generics. Um, and uh, including Restasis and EpiPen and Simbacort. So yesterday I, I, I interviewed Rao, Rao, Rahul Rao, who's the, a deputy director of FTC's Bureau of Competition, who wrote the letters to the companies. And he said the staff initially focused on products that were widely used and many of which have been around for decades and that one would expect there to be a lot more com generic competition, but we're still costing patients hundreds of dollars. He said that the Orange Book is only supposed to list patents covering an active ingredient, and he cited a case in, involving Sanofi's Lantus, and in which the, the First Circuit um, held that um, th that the the patent in dispute um, didn't mention the the, the device. So the agent, he also said the agency is continuing to re review a, a wide array, array of patent listings. So it, it'll be really interesting to see if companies list the patents um, cited by the agency or, or fight the FTC on this and, and what additional patent challenges come about in the future. I'm, which patents the FTC challenges in the future. Historically, um, FTC has focused on pay-for-delay de cases uh, in which, you know, the brand and generic manufacturers allegedly sought to delay competition through an agreement. But for years, it's expressed interest in going beyond that. And this is really an, a whole new area to see this kind of enforcement action um, being taken in notice letters. It was It was surprising. So are they are they trying to scare people into like cleaning out the orange book or 
or you know, because I'm I'm kind of no. trying to figure out what's what's going on here, what the yeah. the end game yeah. is. <laughs> the, the, well, they, I, I think that the end game is to have them delist, delist patent that that um, that they regard as improperly delisted. I I um and so if they, I don't. It's hard to tell, and I I gather that this might come out in the future as companies challenge the patents, like what exactly why these particular patents are problematic for the agency and, and if they are really um, blocking generic competition. There, there are like over 100 patents listed in, in there. So it, it, it takes some dive. And I, I, and I think it will. Uh, there's a lot more interesting things that will come to light as this continues. Also, I, I also just wanted to point out, um, the FTC used FDA's Orange Book dispute process, which really hasn't gotten much attention. I actually was not aware of it. And the, the agency's website lists uh, 60 patent disputes going back to 2017 and notes whether a patent listing was updated or there were no changes to the Orange Book as a result of the dispute. And I asked FDA about this and they, they said that there have been more than these 60 disputes um, and that prior to 2017, the disputes were tracked in a different manner. So um, that that too is, is is interesting that this process was used because as I understood it, the way companies could challenge a, a listed patent was through the inf- infringement litigation and filing a counterclaim. So this this too it, it brings to light this dispute process that um, you know hadn't I I don't I don't recall a case um, ever writing about a case like this. Yeah, there's so many new uh, new elements to. Uh... This that uh, you know, Hatch Waxman, as uh, it's often said, is the uh, the gift that keeps on giving in terms of uh, um, uh, you know complex uh, uh, stories and uh, uh, you know uh, development intricacies. Because I uh, I hadn't heard about the uh, dispute uh, process uh, um, either, and uh, uh, I also was uh, fascinated by uh, the, the the section of your story, Brenda, where you talk about some of these. Uh, products that sort of kind of that uh, FTC is going after already have generics, so it's not like they're uh, they're hoping to bring uh, um, you know generics to the market uh, faster because uh, um, that's already happened, and obviously there you know could be uh, more products coming in to uh, reduce prices even further. But uh, it's uh, uh, a little unusual to see them uh, um, you know pushing for uh, an outcome that uh, perhaps has already occurred, uh, depending on sort of what their what their end goal is here. Yeah, I'm delving into that these particular drugs to find out like which um, which are, are, have generics and how many they have. Like I noticed one just got a generic um, just just recently, and there's one listed that was approved. The drug was approved in 2004, and there were no generics to it. So I'm trying to dig into like, well, why is that? <laughs> so. Um, so even though a lot of them are generic, I think that maybe they only have like one or two generic um, competitors or it's very recent and some don't have any. Well, in overcoming the, the device portion of these products, too, is incredibly difficult because you can't like you were saying, Brenda, you can't infringe. You can't infringe any of the patents on the device. So you have to come up with a device that works substantially the same but isn't the same thing. It doesn't you know, look anything like essentially the what the the brand has. So mm-hmm. maybe if some of these you know patents get delisted, it kind of it it at least helps clear the way for some of the the generic devices to be to get through the process easier. I don't know. I'm, I mean that's just me speculating, but um, yeah, yeah, I, that could be I one think, angle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, 
these are really complex generic products and there's been like looking back there was like a big um you know oh finally this generic got through fda because it was so complex and it's been difficult for some of the products um for for generics to to get to um get through the process so brenda what's what's the next step here if the companies believe that their patents are properly listed. Does FTC sue them? Do the company sue FTC seeking some sort of declaratory judgment that the patents are correctly listed? I think that remains to be seen. Like, like I asked him about taking enforcement action and they're hoping that the companies will respond by delisting, but you know, that it couldn't say too much right now about what's going to happen, but that, that that will be really like how are companies going to respond to this? Um, and I imagine that they'll be back and forth. I mean, they'll respond and either you know I, first through a letter in response and 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 maybe eventually litigation over over the over the the, the challenges of their patents themselves and maybe the process that uh, FTC went through. There was you know no no notice and comment. Um, there's no guidance on what patents aren't listable. Even if the uh, patents end up being having to uh, be removed from the Orange Book, it doesn't mean that uh, companies can't uh, try to enforce them uh, once there's a generic out there. Obviously, we're going to significantly complicate that uh, that issue, and in some ways, we're kind of may uh, complicate things for uh, um, generic developers if they don't sort of know what. Uh, um, legal landscape uh, looks like we've heard complaints a lot about that sort of kind of vis-a-vis the uh, the purple book and the biosimilar mm-hmm. sphere in terms of sort of kind of uh, you know there's not as much of a roadmap for sort of kind of what uh, what patents they have to think about as they're uh, as they're developing things so it uh, um it uh, um is not sort of the the be all end all in terms of sort of uh, um you know sort of speeding uh, these complex generics to market if the uh, if the patents are uh, removed from the orange book yeah it raises the question Will it matter to the companies? Are these patents crucial to them? I mean, there's they have lots and lots of patents. So, will this delisting this would have any impact on their market? The other question this brings up is: Should the FDA be relying on the FTC to essentially police the Orange Book? I, I know you know FDA's traditional role has been we just we it's called ministerial. We we don't we don't check you know to make we just put in the orange book what they tell us is supposed to go in there. And we assume that, you know, those are all correct until they're, you know, they're not correct. But um, I I guess I'm curious if, you know, because we all know that depending on who's, who's in the, who's running the FTC and who's running the FDA and so forth, you know, the, the uh, enthusiasm to go, you know, to, for something like this could, you know, wane or, you know, whatever, you know, as time goes by and, and people, you know, and, and employees come and go. So I'm I'm wondering if maybe I, I don't know if, you know, if this just kind of raises the the question once again, that FDA should be the one policing its orange book and not relying on another federal agency to do it. Well, on that point, very interestingly, FDA seems to be very happy to have the FTC do this because when now FTC put out their press release announcing their policy statement, Robert Califf, the commissioner, was quoted in FTC's release saying that the agency supported the FTC's um, pursuit of this and would assist them however they could. So that was very uh, curious that 
uh, FDA was glad for someone else to pick up the ball and jump into the ministerial gap that they have. Well, I'm sure they're happy because they don't have to have their lawyers doing it. They can have somebody else's lawyers doing it because the FDA is already way overworked. So, <laughs> well, we'll have to see if this uh, ends up prompting either you know some kind of response from the companies or or the agencies or anybody else for that matter. We could even see. I wonder if Capitol Hills becomes interested in this at some point. So, thanks, Brenda. Sure. Next, we're going to switch our focus to advertising and promotion. Sue, you heard from a DOJ official who gave some interesting advice to pharma companies on that front. Yeah, so at the Food and Drug Law Institute's um, annual advertising and promotion meeting last week, um, Aaron Rao, who is the um, deputy, let me make sure I have his title correct, um, deputy assistant attorney general for DOJ's consumer protection branch, he recommended that, that companies in their M&A due diligence process um, take into consideration the target company's advertising and promotion practices. And I have to say this is the first time that I've ever heard of this advice. And, and some attorneys that I talked to also said the same thing, that they thought it was interesting. Um, Brow put it into the context of the DOJ self-disclosure policy. So in September 2022, DOJ announced a policy whereby it will not seek a guilty plea where a corporation has voluntarily self-disclosed, fully cooperated, and remediated the criminal conduct. It also will not require imposition of an independent compliance monitor for a corporation that voluntarily self-discloses and remediates in this in this context. And so the Consumer Protection Branch came out with its own policy on self-disclosure in February. And um, that takes into account um, the oversight it has for, for regulation or for ensuring the marketing of, of health and safety of um, ensuring proper marketing of, of health products and you know, preventing consumer fraud in, in terms of medical products. And that policy governs self-disclosure if a company uncovers misconduct in advertising or promotion of a medical product or dietary supplement, although self-disclosure merely to the FTC or FDA is not enough. Um, DOJ wants companies to also make self-disclosure to the department itself. Just recently in October, DOJ updated its self-disclosure policy to add a new mergers and acquisitions safe harbor policy. And under that, if an acquiring company uncovers misconduct, including any related to advertising or promotion by an acquired company and reports that misconduct within six months of closing the deal and then remediates within a year, it will receive a presumption that DOJ will decline to prosecute with respect to the acquired company's conduct. I think Rao was just sort of emphasizing, hey, it's important if you're buying a company, if you're merging with another company, it's important for you to know what their advertising and promotional practices are and what the, your risks are there with regard to acquiring that company. And if you do find out something after the fact, Here's this way that you can deal with it quickly, cleanly, and not be on the hook for DOJ prosecution. 
So is this something that could sink a merger? I guess what they're saying is uh, that if you if you uh, do this review, you'll uh, ensure that uh, you're not going to have any, uh, you know, uh, uh, surprises. Obviously, the review avoids surprises, but you're not going to have any uh, legal problems. That's we're going to they'll they'll they'll, they'll let uh, bygones be got bygones as long as you um, <laughs> pledge to stop doing this uh, this bad stuff. You're uh, you know, you're in the clear. So. Uh, that uh, in some ways it would encourage the merger. If you're if you're worried about uh, any kind of shady activity, uh, you know you uh, um, you and you pledge to stop it uh, once you found it. Uh, you're uh, you're not going to get in any DOJ trouble now. If I can sort of kind of spool out that uh, question a little bit more, you know, if you're merging with someone because you think they uh, uh, their their sales tactics are, uh, are are strong and robust, and then you discover that uh, um, they're kind of uh, uh, shady and inappropriate, that's going to change your uh, revenue calculations for those products uh, going forward. So maybe that will uh, that will spike a merger, Derek. Uh, you know, I, I said that it wouldn't, but uh, um, now that I sort of think about the permutations of this, uh, um, this perhaps it will. So uh, um, there's that there's that part of it too. I guess I was thinking about it, and this is probably doesn't doesn't apply. But in the just the the DOJ review, I mean, I guess for anti-competitive reasons, I'm wondering if something like this kind of pops up, you know, whether intentionally or not, when they're doing those kinds of reviews and they're finding it, so they're telling these companies, you guys need to deal with this type of thing. Yeah, I don't. Uh, his, he he didn't make his con his remarks in the context of DOJ or FTC review of mergers. So I'm not sure kind of how often that comes up. I mean, I certainly have heard advice in terms of in your M&A due diligence, you really need to consider, you know, compliance issues, especially GMP compliance. That's a big thing for companies to consider in their due diligence. Um, but this is the first that I had heard, <laughs> at least a DOJ official say, consider the advertising promotion practices of the company you're trying to buy. But so also the in terms of is... getting in terms of being off the hook from prosecution, you have to follow through on the the elements of the self-disclosure policy. You have to do everything that is required and prescribed or else you're not going to get the benefits of it. So the lesson is, you know, historic unless you do it the way we tell you, if his, all those historical practices still could come back and bite you you know, year, you know, however long after the fact, even if you say that's before we bought the company, you're you're still liable. Yeah, if you're not if you're not addressing them in the way that is required under the self disclosure policy. Yeah, it's very interesting. We'll have to see if we see more of these now starting to come out. With uh, thanks, Sue. Sure. Finally, we're going to look at the appeal of an advisory committee decision. Brenda, I don't think I've ever seen this before. No, no, this is the first of its kind. What happened is that there was an advisory committee meeting on Intarsia's ITCA 650, which is a drug device combination, exenatide, a GLP-1 agonist implant. And the committee voted unanimously, 19 to 0, that Intarsia failed to demonstrate that the benefits of the product outweigh its risks. And this 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 advisory committee meeting was actually held as a as an alternative to an evidentiary hearing on FDA's Cedar's proposal to deny Intarsia's application. And there's been a long battle over 
FTC Cedar's proposal to 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 not accept the application, and um, so the company won this hearing, which is a victory for them. But um, then the committee voted against them, so they uh, appealed the decision, and they claimed that FDA presented uh, Cedar presented materially false and misleading information about the product. Um, they uh, objected to um, the the. the agency's presentation about the the device and the concerns about the device. FDA, FDA said, told me, I asked, well, is this, is this the first time there's been an appeal? And they said, well, this is the very first time that an ad, advisory committee has served as a, as a public hearing in this way. And so consequently, this, this is the first time there has been an appeal of an of a committee decision. Um, there's also, there's a regulation though that allows committee votes and dis discussion to serve as an initial dis decision in this situation. So both Theater and um, Intarsi have the opportunity to file exceptions with respect to the advisor committee's advice. And that's what Intarsi did in, in this case. It's it's a long battle that Intarsi has had with the agency, and this is a, a new chapter and uh, a new kind of... Um, a new kind of situation that has emerged. So this isn't like a like a, a traditional advisory committee meeting where you know the seven the seven six uh, you know vote is you know the the company's going to be you know could could appeal it. This is like a special situation. Yeah, the the way it's set up with this kind of uh, he hearing is that um, the the chief scientist said that told them that um, she she would regard the committee's decision as an initial decision. And then she's setting up um, a, a, a team to to make a, a that she's going to work with the task force she's going to work with to make a final decision for the agency. I'm kind of curious about the uh, return on investment that they see from this uh, this whole thing. Uh, you know, we've obviously seen companies kind of drag their feet when uh, FDA wants to remove a, uh, a product from the market, but here this this product is not generating revenue for them, and they're simply just racking up uh, legal bills. And uh, one might argue through kind of ill will at the uh, the agency as well. And uh, what are they hoping to accomplish through all these uh, these processes? Uh, you know, uh, I guess the uh, you know maybe they don't think they have adequate guidance from the uh, agency as to how to go forward, and uh, you know perhaps get the drug. Uh, um, approved, and so uh, they think that if they uh, they push on this, they'll sort of get the uh, um, the recognitions they want uh, from them to sort of kind of do another uh, a trial or so, and uh, um, and uh, perhaps get a uh, an application back in there. But it just seems like a uh, a lot of money to spend on a, a fairly uh, um, uh, futile quest, in my uh, in my opinion. Yeah, it would the, seem to the, me they're probably building a case for a lawsuit. But again, that's more money, more expenditure of resources, and most likely in a, in for a futile reason. The, well, the debate is over the science. I mean, FDA says that their product has more uh, potential, a greater risk of acute kidney injury than other GLP ones on on the market, and they insist that that's not true. And they compared it to Wagavi's um, clinical trial data and. They they said whatever risk there is could be managed in the label as as is the case with other GLP ones, and then the other 
part of it is on the device and there's a they're 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 questioning um fda's criticism of the device and whether um it accurately provides a, a dose a dose that can be um monitored I'm, I'm sorry i don't remember the exact details on the device um but interestingly um Three former Intarsi employees sent a letter to FDA to the chief scientist too after the advisory committee meeting, also saying that Cedar had presented um, a skewed uh, view of the device, including one of the one of the <clears throat> employees who, who who worked on the development of it. Brenda, are you expecting any sort of rebuttal from Cedar to these assertions uh, yes. that it presented it misrepresented? Yeah. The science? Yeah, I, yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I think so, Sue. I think that, I think that they will respond. It's, there's been a long, there's been a long back and forth between the two of them. Very, very contentious uh, disagreement by Intarsia on, on Cedar's um, position. Yeah, the uh, letter said that the appeal includes uh, um, video clips. I'd be very curious to see sort of kind of how, uh, how tightly, uh, Edited those clips are to uh, kind of to make their uh, make their case. If it's just for kind of uh, uh, you know little, little tidbits that sort of kind of that uh, Cedar will respond with their own uh, um, uh, you know a video of sort of, kind of here's the uh, here's the complete picture we uh, we offer. I don't know if it's going to be some sort of, kind of uh, YouTube war in terms of sort of, kind of who uh, who has the better <laughs> uh, editing approach to sort of, kind of make their uh, make their case look uh, um, look the most uh, cogent. So uh, um, be interesting to see oh. how it all plays out. Yeah, that's true, Matt. You you raised um, they uh, Intarsi said in their in their appeal that they were submitting with the appeal uh, video clips from the from the advisory committee meeting, and, and those aren't available yet. I understand that they're going to be uh, in the future available. So I had never heard of that either. It's a new it's a new uh, forum for 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 fighting FDA. And all of this to potentially go into a market that's already crowded with a label that could be more restrictive than the co the competition. So good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend uh, I'm not going to question the strategy. I'm just trying to, you know, just thinking out loud how, how that's all going to work. But <laughs> it's an interesting story nonetheless. So thanks, Brenda. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Brenda Sandberg, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time.